Amen. Thank you, Felicia. I, I just have to say, just before I start, that I was introduced as a guest speaker, but I want you all to know that I preached my first sermon here 33 years ago. So as far as I'm concerned, everybody else is a guest speaker. I'm going to, actually, I, I once taught a sermon series that lasted for five years. It wasn't continuous. I had to take weeks off. I only preached once a year, but it still lasted five years. Anyway, we're going to start. I'm going to, I'm going to just ask you to think of a movie. If you've ever seen The Princess Bride, you might remember there was a scene in that movie or several scenes in that movie where one of the actors used the word inconceivable. He kept saying inconceivable. Inconceivable. At the, near the end of that movie, and, and you might, I want to put the next slide up there, Andrew. Near the end of that movie, one of the other characters says, you keep using that word. I do not think it means what you think it means. <laughs> that line has become famous. I do not think it means what you think it means. I actually thought of this one not too long ago, actually a few years back. Somebody was talking to us, an acquaintance of ours was talking to my wife and I, and, he, and the unfortunate thing is, and I don't remember the details, I don't generally remember many details, but this was a story that was told that I think she had been going through a marriage breakup. And her mother sent her an email or a text as she was going through this, and I'm going to change all the names so you don't know who I'm talking about, but this, this on the screen is what the text said. It said, hi, Sally. I just heard about you and Sam. That is so sad. I feel so bad for you. LOL, mom. <laughs> now, when you read LOL there, that changes everything in that message. Like, LOL is laugh out loud. So this is like, okay, you read it with the LOL, you go, oh, that is so sad. I feel so bad for you, LOL. Like, this is like the best thing that could possibly happen to you. However, when she was talking to her mother later, and this is a true story, when she was talking to her mother later, she found out that her mother actually thought LOL stood for lots of love. And this was not the only email she'd sent. So it made me wonder how many times she'd sent emails that completely got misconstrued because of that misunderstanding. Anyway, when I was asked to preach on this topic today, I thought of that line. Just put, if you put that, that verse up there, this verse, um, John 14, verse 13, says, you may ask me for anything in my name, and I will do it. That reminds me of that line. I think they, this might mean something different than what you think it means. Unfortunately, many people have the wrong idea of this verse. And I was reading, as I was preparing, I was reading through, you know, when you read uh, commentaries, and you get a Bible passage, and then underneath, if you have the, the nerve, you go and read some of the comments that are inserted below the article. And these comments, quite frankly, on this verse or on this passage of Scripture were actually very, very upsetting. Many, many people thought that God had failed them and that the Bible wasn't being true to its promise of doing anything you ask. And I'm going to read one of these posts that um, I'll just pick it up halfway through where this father, and this is heartbreaking, this is so sad, but this is what he writes, and it's actually following the stillborn birth of his child. He said, we prayed over him when he went to the hospital and was told that there was no heartbeat. We prayed over him for more than two hours, 
as I held his cold body in my hands, asking God in faith and expecting him to revive my son, while continuing to pray in Jesus' name. And nothing happened. Now this is heartbreaking and it's sad, but unfortunately it reveals a very poor understanding of how to read the Bible and what this verse is actually about. And first of all, before I start this, I'm going to tell you how important I think the Bible is and how important and how critical it is that we learn to read it properly. It's a common belief today, and we've been talking about this in Wednesdays in the Word. It's a common belief today that there is no God. And actually, I heard a a podcast this week that said that uh, never before in history have as many people checked off the box, no religion, when it asks for religious affiliation. In the United States, more people check off none for the religious affiliation than ever in history. So the common belief in in society, or um, among many people, is that there is no God and that the universe created itself. Now, we believe, and we know intuitively, that nothing can actually create itself. It's a preposterous proposition when you really think about it. But if you also think about it, a world where no no creator created it is, is kind of meaningless. It has no purpose. It's ultimately worthless. But now I'm going to say, if you think about it further, you're going to say, if there's a creator who created the world but didn't reveal himself to his creation then it's also a world that is meaningless and has no purpose and is worthless. We have to believe that God has revealed himself to us through the Bible. That's a fundamental belief of what it means to be a Christian. As a matter of fact, I heard somebody say once, they can tell how committed a Christian is by how they answer the question. Do you believe that the Bible is a sacred text and that it is the the inspired word of God? If they answer no, or if they're not sure, or if they waver in their answer then you know they're actually not a fully committed Christian. Our belief in God has to be in the belief of the God of the Bible. The Bible is what reveals God to us. This is how important the Bible is to us. But it can be read incorrectly. And people can take verses out of context and they can make them think they mean something completely different than they mean. And it can cause a great deal of pain and confusion, as with that that father who lost his stillborn baby. It can also cause a lot of grief in the world with people who interpret it poorly and they commit horrible acts in the name of religion and in the name of the Bible. That's also a very poor understanding of the Bible. I became very interested in this many years ago and I was in my late 30s. Believe it or not, I was the same age as Cameron, my son, when, we, when he was up here. The same age as him, I got into this study and I found it somewhere. I, I don't remember what it was called, but it was the most difficult passages in the Bible. I think it had a more creative title than that, but it was about studying the most difficult things that were in the Bible and and what they actually mean, and I I got really into it. And this verse was one of the topics in that study. So I went through it in detail. I found it interesting when I was assigned this verse for this sermon, because I think that's, you know, God working. takes time. But here we are, many years later, and... um, All of that came back to me as I was preparing for this sermon. So we're talking about this verse that can sometimes lead people to believe that they can ask for anything, and as long as they say, in Jesus' name, they can get it. 
Kind of like a magical, you know, a magical formula, a magic formula. Kind of like it's a, it's a little code. You put in Jesus' name, that means you're going to get it. Um, but that's not true. And in Wednesdays in the Word, somebody referred to that as the celestial butler concept of God. Somebody you can call on to get what you want. Kind of like make a wish, you get it. That's not what God is, and that's not what's happening here. I'm just going to quote this just because I want you to understand that I believe in miracles very strongly, and there are incredible miracles happening every day but they don't happen routinely all the time. Even C.S. Lewis in his book On Miracles, C.S. Lewis believed very strongly in miracles. And he talks about miracles, he wrote an entire book called Miracles. But he says in this book, The Problem of Pain, he writes that God can and does on occasions modify the behavior of matter and produce what we call miracles is part of Christian faith. But the very conception of a common and therefore stable world demands that these occasions should be extremely rare. But we're still left with this verse that Jesus said, you may ask me for anything in my name and I will do it. So we have to look at this in detail today and find out what it is that Jesus is actually saying and, who's, and what this is about. We're going to break it into four questions. Number one, we're going to talk about who Jesus is speaking to. Number two, what is he requiring of them? Number three, why is he making this promise to them? And then number four, in summary, how does this impact our lives today? So let's start with, who is Jesus speaking to? Now this, this sermon follows directly on Carolyn's last week in the passage in John, and you will recall that Jesus is in the upper room at the Lord's Supper addressing his disciples, and after three years of being with them nonstop, he's telling them that his death is imminent and that he will be leaving them soon. He starts off, and I'm just going to recap, go back to the beginning, because I want you to know in John chapter 14, verse 1, he starts off with, do not let your hearts be troubled. So there's obviously some anxiety in the room. The disciples are with him. He's about to be crucified. He knows this. He's telling them this, and there's some anxiety in the room. In verses 4 to 7, he says, you know the way to the place where I am going. And Carolyn went through this last week. Thomas said to him, Lord, we don't know where you are going, so how can we know the way? And Jesus answered, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And if you really know me, you will know my Father as well. From now on, you do know me. You do know him and have seen him, the Father. Now we pick up what we're starting, the passage that we're speaking on this week. Verses 8 and 9, Philip says, Philip, says, Lord, show us the Father, and that will be enough for us. Jesus answered, don't you know me, Philip, even after I have been among you such a long time? Anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? I call this the come on, man, yeah. response of Jesus. Come on, man, Philip, haven't you been listening to anything I've been saying? Haven't you been paying attention for the past three years? Jesus was talking to his disciples in that room, those closest to him, those who knew him the best, not crowds of people who he'd never met before. These were his disciples. He was delivering a very important, life-altering message to them. He needed them to understand. It required a certain level of spiritual maturity and faith in order to understand what he's saying. And Philip kind of let him down by saying, show us the Father, that will be enough. You know, I'm going to compare this a little bit earlier. Um, not compare this. I'm going to, uh, I'm going to um, 
refer back a little bit earlier. We don't know a lot about Philip, but we do know that Jesus had one interaction with him earlier. It's during the feeding of the 5,000. And if you read into this and you actually take the time to actually see what it's saying, it's very interesting. John 6, so it's a fair bit earlier, John 6 verses 5 to 7 says, when Jesus looked up and saw a great crowd coming toward him, he said to Philip, so he's talking to Philip, the same guy, where shall we buy bread for all these people to eat? He asked this only to test him, for he already had in mind what he was going to do. Philip answered him, it would take more than half a year's wages to buy enough bread for each one to have a bite. Now, clearly, Jesus, in this interaction, knows Philip pretty well. He's been living with him. They've been traveling together. He knows Philip really well. Philip is clearly one of those detail-oriented people because he said, hey, where are we going to buy the bread to feed all these people? He's meeting Philip where he's at. He's finding a weakness in Philip that is, I, would, I wouldn't say it's a weakness necessarily. I'm going to say, I know a little bit about living with a detail-oriented person. <laughs> I know exactly what that's like. I know what it's like to live with a detail-oriented person when you're not a detail-oriented person. And I'll give you an example. Just an example. This week, this week I said to my wife, my wife Kim plays the piano, in case you don't know the, all the connections here. My wife plays the piano here. And Kim is her name. She said to me, I, I was talking to her and I said, you know what, I'm going to have my entire management team up to the cottage for a full day at the end of the summer. Because I think it would really, you know, I built a gazebo and I thought it would be really cool to use that as a meeting place. And then I said we could, you know, have a meeting in the morning and then get, get out on the water in the afternoon. And Kim said, well, what are you going to feed them? And, you know, in a typical fashion, I would say, well, I don't know, we'll, we'll figure something out. It's one of those lines that drives her nuts. Here we are, a week later, the entire day is planned. The menu is set. She even has all the dietary restrictions of everybody on my management team organized. She knows exactly what everybody's going to be fed. She's even planning on making something for somebody specifically because they know he, they know, uh, she knows he likes that. And I have to say, you see, it always takes care of itself. <laughs> but Philip... Clearly, clearly, and you have to understand, Jesus says, Philip, we're gonna, where are we going to find all the bread to feed all these people? He knew right off the, right off the bat that it's going to take, he's not going to buy enough bread to feed all these people. If Kim was there, Kim would have said, I know Kim would have been there, said, Jesus, you're not feeding all these people. There's no way. And Philip had the mindset, clearly, if you read you know, into this, the mindset that he needed to see. And Jesus knew that. And when he said this is a test, he said this to test him. The test wasn't then. It wasn't the test to see if he knew how much bread cost. The test was to see if his faith would be strengthened by what he's seeing today, which doesn't actually get revealed until much later when we're talking in the upper room. And he says, when Philip says, show me the Father, that will be enough. And Jesus has to say, come on, man, Philip, I've shown you myself. I show you, you've seen who I am. Why do I need to go through this again? So the reason I'm asking this question, I actually, I'm going to just say one, one other thing on that point. Jesus had the same question asked of him by the Pharisees just before this. And I'm going, I want you to contrast and compare this. In John 8, 19, speaking of the Pharisees, it says, then they asked him, where is your father? Kind of similar to what Philip said. 
And Jesus replied, you do not know me or my father. His response to the Pharisees who didn't know him was very different than his response to Philip. My point in making all this is when Jesus is making this promise, he's making it to firmly committed believers who are strong in their faith, very, very spiritually mature, and understand the realities of what God will do for them and what his purpose is for them. The second question was, what is he requiring of them? So now let's finish this passage. John chapter 14, verses 12 to 14. Very truly I tell you, whoever believes in me will do the works I have been doing, and they will do even greater things than these because I am going to the Father, and I will do whatever you ask in my name so that the Father may be glorified in the Son. You may ask me anything in my name, and I will do it. Now the key in here, the key in this passage are the words, in my name. It's not a magic formula that stick on the end of a prayer. Nothing wrong with saying in Jesus' name at the end of a prayer, don't get me wrong. I'm just saying it's not a magic formula that just makes you get whatever you want. When you pray something in someone's name, it means you're doing it on his behalf or by his authority. You can think of a child, if you watch an, an old movie where a child gets sent to the store to buy something on his parent's account. That's buying something in the parent's name. This can, can be misused. This idea that you're using somebody's name can be misused. I'm going to give you an example. I know it's a, not a perfect analogy, but I'm going to give this story anyway. Many years ago, many years ago, 45 years ago, I worked at McDonald's. I was a man, an assistant manager. My best friend, when I was in grade school, also worked in the same McDonald's. We got the jobs together. He was also a, an assistant manager. We had, you know, risen the ranks quickly in this career. <laughs> I did the morning shift. He did the night shift. I'm going to use his name because I didn't tell him I'm saying this story, although I don't think he'd mind. But I'm going to, use, I'm going to say his name is Frank because that's what he told somebody his name was once when he was getting in trouble. <laughs> so I'm working the morning shift. He's working the night shift. We worked at the McDonald's. This is in the 70s. We worked in the McDonald's that's in between Shepherd and Young, Shepherd and Finch on Young Street. It's at 5200 Young Street. And in that McDonald's, if you've ever been there, if you were there years ago, it had a theme where all musical instruments were installed all on the walls. They had them hung on the walls all around that restaurant. And um, I don't know who planned this, and I don't know how this came to be, but at one point, this beautiful, beautiful set of bagpipes, which are apparently quite rare, they're called Blackwood bagpipes, were given to the store to keep there, and they were installed on the wall, but because the uh, you know, head office was concerned about them being stolen, they had a big uh, you know, encased glass case built that they installed these uh, bagpipes behind, behind glass doors with, with a lock on it. One night, when Frank was on his night shift, a guy came in with this little tiny toy set of plastic bagpipes that looked like it had probably been bought at Toys R Us. It was very tiny. And he said, I'm here to replace the bagpipes. And Frank said, what do you mean you're here to replace the bagpipes? Yeah, they sent me to replace the bagpipes. So Frank, being responsible, said, who sent you to replace those bagpipes with this? And the guy said, head office. So Frank said, who at head office? Now, the problem was, Frank didn't know anybody at office. <laughs> so the guy just answered, and he said, Scott. Well, Scott seemed like just as good an answer as anybody else. 
So he went and got the keys, opened up the cabinet, gave this guy the, the beautiful blackwood bagpipes, and took the little toy bagpipes and hung them on the thing in the middle, locked up the case and put the lock on it, and went about the shift. The next day when the head manager came in, he saw this little toy bagpipe in this, uh, in this glass case. He said, what happened to the bagpipes? Nobody knew. When we found out that Frank had given them to somebody, and the head manager said to Frank, who took them? Who did this? And he said, head office. He said, who from head office? It was some guy, Scott. And he said, Scott who? I forgot to ask Scott who. So he didn't know. Anyway, the point is, this kind of destroyed his career at McDonald's, but I actually, I actually thought it was one of the funniest things I'd ever seen happen. I went in. If you ever happened to go into that McDonald's on Young Street and see a little... They, it was there literally for five years. Inside a glass cabinet with a little toy plastic bagpipes. I would go in there long after I stopped working at McDonald's and look at that case and look at the bagpipes, and we're so mean to this guy. We say, hey, Frank, Scott's still got his bagpipes. My point here is, my point here is, knowing the name of who to call on when you want something done in their name isn't enough. You have to know that person's intention. In this particular case, you have to know the person. But you would also, if you did, if there was a Scott, you would have to know that that's what Scott actually wanted. You can't say you're doing something by somebody's authority in someone's name when you don't know that's actually what they want. When Jesus says, says, you can ask me for anything in my name, and he says it twice, you ask for anything in my name, and I will do it. He's meaning you will ask anything that is in accordance with my will. I'm leaving you, but anything that I was going to do, I can still do. Because anything you need done, I can still accomplish. It goes on... It goes on um, in John, John chapter 15, the very next verse. You don't have to take my word for it or read very deeply into this. It, Jesus actually says this. He says it in the next chapter when he's talking about the vine and the branches. In John chapter 15, verses 5 to 8, he says, I am the vine, you are the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. If you do not remain in me, you are like a branch that is thrown away and withers. Such branches are picked up, thrown into the fire, and burned. Now the key, if you remain in me and my words remain in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. Note there, they are Jesus' words within him. My words will remain in you. We are actually talking here about aligning ourselves with Jesus' will through anything. As long as, we're, as long as we're asking for something that is aligned with Jesus' will for us, it will be granted. Sometimes, Jesus doesn't will bad things to happen. Bad things just happen ever since the fall. Life on earth ends in death. We all know that. There's going to be horrible things that happen. Life is a natural thing that was, after the fall of Adam, life became this imperfect world with lots of pain, suffering, problems. But God has a will for every one of us. If that will is to perform a miracle, God will perform that miracle. But you might have to ask for it. And keep asking for it. 
And maybe, if it's in God's will, you will get the miracle. Not promised. Even Jesus, when he asked for the cup to be taken from him in Gethsemane, was not granted that request. That was not in God's will. But you can still ask, and if it is in God's will, he will do it. But the more important thing in here is, when you're seeking God, when you're looking to God, when you're praying, you're not, in my view, you're not really supposed to be necessarily asking for things you're basically aligning yourself with God's will. You're seeking God's will in everything. So now, this, I guess this question, I want to ask the question because if anybody's thinking it, I don't want to ignore it. You might be thinking, well, if God's only going to do what is in his will, why do we have to even pray? What's the whole point? Why doesn't God just do it? And never mind what we're praying for. And I'm going to tell you, the reason that, the reason that we, we're to pray, and we do know, by the way, in Philippians chapter 4, verse 6, it says, you know this, be anxious for nothing but in everything in prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be known to God. God wants our requests. He wants us to ask. He wants us to seek. And if it is in his will, he wants to, to give us that reward. However, the more important thing is here that we are aligning ourselves with his will and he's doing this because we were created for him. God doesn't need us to pray, but God wants us to pray because he wants to work through us. He doesn't want to just, he knows he can do anything he wants. He doesn't need us to tell him or to ask him, but he wants us to ask. He's created for us to be in relationship with him. And I'm going to go on a limb here and I'm going to say humanity exists. We exist to be in relationship with God and to glorify him in the process of doing that. We exist to glorify God, period. If you read this verse, Isaiah 43, verses 6 to 7, bring my sons from afar and bring my daughters from the ends of the earth, everyone who is called by my name, whom I created for my glory. He created us for his glory. You can make this claim to anybody you know, any walk of life, any faith, any belief system, you can say to them confidently, the reason we exist is to glorify God. And if they come back with any argument, I'd like to know what it would be. I mean, I can imagine the argument. If you say, we exist to glorify God, they could say, no, we don't. And then you could say, yes, we do. And then they would say, no, we don't. And then you could continue like that. But then eventually you would say, okay, then why do we exist? And they're going to have to think about that a little bit. And eventually, if they can't come up with some crazy answer, they'll have to say, well, there really is no reason. I say, okay, well then at least let's agree on where we disagree. I have chosen to believe that there is, that life does have a reason and a purpose, and you have chosen to believe that life does not have a reason or a purpose. And that's where we differ. But if the life does have a reason and a purpose, it is through the God of our Bible, and he has asked us to glorify him and seek his will. He wants us to discern, to discern his will and to pray his will into action. That's why we pray. Number three, why is Jesus making this promise that he will do anything they ask in his name? There's another part of this little passage, John 14, 13, 14, that we want to cover. It says, and I will do whatever you ask in my name so that the Father may be glorified in the Son. You may ask me anything in my name and I will do it. Just the key, the key words there, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. Jesus was not telling his disciples to ask him to do anything for them so that their lives will be better. 
He was telling them that he was going to be leaving them physically, but that he will still be there with them, able to do what he was doing, and their mission will continue. They will continue to build the kingdom, even in his absence. As a matter of fact, he says, you will be able to accomplish more when I am gone than we've been able to accomplish while I am here. And the reason that he said that is because, obviously, through the generations of the church, more has been accomplished. Millions of people brought into the kingdom as the result of the church and the people that are proclaiming the gospel in Jesus' name. So, why did Jesus promise these disciples that he will do anything that they ask in his name? Was it to assure them that they would never get sick? Was it to assure them that their family would never get sick? Maybe they would never die? Maybe there would never be a stillborn birth? among the believers? No. That's not this promise. This promise is that God's mission will never die. The church, if you feel concerned about the future of the church, then that's not being faithful. God will see his work through. We are here to help in that work. Jesus is leaving his disciples, which now spread down to us, to proclaim that gospel and build that kingdom. And he will do anything that we ask in his name to further that cause. Now, number four, how does this impact us today? And this is just in closing. I believe that if we really understand what this verse is talking about that we've been studying today, it will result in three areas of renewed focus in our lives. Number one, I think it should... should, um, bring a focus on maintaining a strong faith. Think of how Jesus reacted to Philip's apparent lack of faith. He had shown himself to Philip, Philip had forgotten. Maintain a strong faith. Commit to a strong faith regardless of what happens in our lives. I love this verse in James 1, 5-6, where it says, If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives to all liberally and without reproach, and it will be given to him. But let him ask in faith, with no doubting. For he who doubts is like a wave of the sea, driven and tossed by the wind. Now, you can read that and say, well, that means I have to have faith that I'm going to get what I'm asking for. No, think of being faithful, not having faith. If you're thinking along the lines, if I'm going to have faith that I will get what I ask for, I think you're not really thinking of faithfulness. If you think along the lines as, I will be faithful regardless of the outcome. I will be faithful regardless of the way God answers this prayer. That's faith. I have a favorite example of this in Daniel. Daniel 3, 16 to 18. I know you know the story, it does remind you. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to their king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If that is the case, our God, whom we serve, is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace, and he will deliver us from your hand. Very confident and faithful. But if not, I love those three words, but if not, Let it be known to you, O king, that we do not serve your gods, nor will we worship the gold image that you have set up. If the prayer I'm asking for is not granted, I'm not going to lose my faith over it. I just know that God has a different plan and will answer this prayer in a different way. And we want to seek his will to find out what that way is. Number two, I believe our focus will be on aligning, not only to be faithful through anything, but to align our will with God's will. As we walk daily with Jesus... Our will will become more aligned with his will. As we bring everything to him in prayer, think of it as a conversation, not a request. 
Now, at first glance, this might seem it's like a step backwards if you say, oh, I thought I could ask for anything and it will be granted, as long as I say in Jesus' name at the end. And now I'm saying, oh, no, you have to make sure it's aligned with Jesus' will, and you have to be faithful, and it doesn't matter if he grants that request that way or not. So that might seem like a major step backwards, but think about this for a second. If, you, if God is willing, if Jesus, as he makes this promise, will give you everything you request that is in his will for you, for your life, think about that. God has a plan for our life. God wants us to fulfill that, that plan. And if we align our will with his will, what we ask for, we will be granted because we'll be asking for exactly what he wants of us. And that not only leads to, we do know that that leads to a life, as the Bible says, full of joy and peace and purpose. It does lead to that. I want to take a slight sidebar here and just say, that's not the goal. The goal of following God and, and, doing, and being faithful and patient is not just so that we will have a life of joy, peace, and purpose. Lots of people claim to have lives of joy, peace, and purpose. Other religions preach similar concepts. There are people who feel very happy in their current state. and you, I don't want to come out and say nobody can experience joy if they're not a Christian. Nobody can experience um, peace if they're not a Christian. Nobody can experience any sense of purpose if they're not a Christian. That's not true. But what is true is that the only way to have an eternal life through Jesus Christ is by following Jesus Christ. He is the only way. We will have a life of joy, peace, and purpose, which is great, but that's not the goal. The goal is to have eternal life. I'm just going to remind you of John 3.16. It says, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son. And the reason? That to whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. The goal is to have eternal life. We have to think of this in the big picture, not the micro, not the current circumstance. And finally, our third point Impacting our lives today, focus on glorifying God through everything. When Jesus was speaking to his disciples in the upper room, he was not addressing their concerns in their daily life. He was concerning himself with their shared mission. This is the same mission that we're on now. Do not lose heart. Continue the fight. Believe in the kingdom and believe in our mission in the church and ask for anything you need of Jesus and he will grant it. You know, at Northridge, we have a really firsthand experience of this. Our church, Brian has spoken on this in the past. Our church has gone through multiple phases. In one of those phases, when we were changing some of the ways we were doing things, we were losing families. Like, lots of families were leaving our congregation. And, you know, they did things about worship styles and dress code and anything that you can think of was coming up. But our ministry, our ministry board, we prayed consistently to seek God's will in everything. And I remember one night in particular, and Brian has told this story before, one night in particular, we had to make a decision on purchasing property. Our church was dwindling. It wasn't very big. We didn't have the financial resources available to purchase the property. And you can say this is, you know, irresponsible, or you can say it's displaying great faith. I don't know what you would say. But we decided to proceed, and we made the financial commitment to purchase the property so that we could come and enjoy this, you know, this beautiful experience here. We didn't have the money on hand. The next day, the amount that we committed to was donated to our church. It was amazing. I'm not saying that miracles happen every time, and I've spent a long time explaining that they don't. 
Miracles might not happen in an overwhelming, you know, supernatural way every time. Sometimes when you're aligned with God's will and you're making those prayers, they're very small, incremental things that only you know, only you will notice that is an answer to prayer. But I will say, when we stop expecting God to change our circumstance and we start to seek his will within that circumstance, that's when we will start to experience Jesus as the one who answers our prayers. And as Cameron said earlier, those walls will come tumbling down. It just may not be the way you're envisioning it. Unless the worship team will come back up and let's just close in prayer. Our Father, we thank you for your word. We know how important it is that we we dig deep into your word and we understand what it is that you would have us uh, know. I just pray, God, that you will take the words that were presented through this message and this, the, the scriptures this morning and apply it to the hearts of those here today. I just pray that you will help those that are struggling with some, some unanswered prayer in their life, that, that maybe this, when they look at, at your will for their life and understand what the bigger picture is, maybe there's a purpose, maybe there's something that you would have in their life that takes this into account and that circumstance can be blessed. And we will see those prayers answered. We pray for faithfulness. We pray that we will not waver in our faith no matter what. We pray that our wills will be aligned. We pray that everything that we seek to do, you will be there guiding us, helping us, assisting us to be in line with your will. And we also pray for the expansion and, and, and our role in the expansion of your kingdom here on earth today. We pray all of these things in and through the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.